Welcome to the Vet Voice Foundation podcast, where we interview veterans employed or advocating within the conservation and public land space. I am your host, Kate Hoyt. Today, we are interviewing Joe Colbert, Marine Corps veteran turned biologist, where we discuss predator protections of rattlesnake species, academia and research life as a veteran, mushroom farming as a side gig, and much, much more. My full name is Joseph Edward Colbert III. I wear several different hats. My primary job, my day job, the job that I got after getting my master's is wildlife biologist. I work on Jekyll Island State Park in Georgia, which is a really cool place. It's a uh, sustainably developed community. It's one third developed, two thirds undeveloped. Two thirds of, of the island is under my department's custody, the conservation department. Anywhere where there's a wildlife problem on the island, when it's inside of that development, it becomes our jurisdiction too. So safety concerns, injured animals, and uh, priority species that we're interested in for research purposes. That's kind of my hat I wear by day. By night, I'm a mushroom farmer. Me and two other guys own Southern Brothers Farms. Mushroom farmer by night, wildlife biologist by day, and I also volunteer uh, as, a, as a board member and research associate with uh, Rattlesnake Conservancy, which is kind of a new up-and-coming nonprofit organization that is about you know education and fundraising for rattlesnake conservation. Let's talk about life growing up and why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? So life growing up, I, uh, my dad was in the Navy when I was young. We moved a, a good deal. I, I got to see a lot of really cool places and stuff like that. I never really anchored to anywhere until I ended up in uh, South Carolina. Um, my dad got out of the Navy and he started working for uh, Michelin, the French tire company. And that was kind of the most stability I had at any point. But when I lived in South Carolina, um, when I first moved there, I lived in a more rural area, and I guess the outdoors was part of life up there. We had a couple acres of land. Everybody around us had land, and was kind of just free range as kids. And I had a little small four-wheeler, which I, I definitely wrecked more times than I should have. But uh, the outdoors was just kind of life, and you know, there was a certain sense of like, like freedom and, I guess, sense of self-satisfaction that I got from being outside growing up. There's a creek near my house where we used to flip rocks to find crawfish and stuff like that. And, um, back then, I didn't really know anything about snakes like I do now. I used to see snakes and, you know, get a little scared and back off of them and stuff like that. But I, I lived in a place that was rich with life. I guess that was kind of one of the things that led me to be a biologist. Being in a place that was rich with life made me want to be protective of that and make sure that everybody could for at least have access to those places. As a kid, I, I got to spend a lot of time outside got to enjoy some of those activities. My dad, he did a lot of homestead gardening. We did a little bit of hunting growing up. Yeah, that's pretty much what young life was like. Going into the Marine Corps, I had been living in Columbia, South Carolina for a little while, went to high school there. I got in a lot of trouble growing up, <laughs> more than most kids. And I ended up graduating from high school, kind of taking my time into figuring out what I wanted to do. And uh, I'd always been partial to the military and maybe had a little bit of uncertainty to it. I went to um, a recruiter and they saw how much trouble I've been in as a kid. And they were like, oh boy, this is going to be a tough one. And uh, they went through this whole big process. It took a little over a month and I got waivers and more waivers and more waivers. And I talked to this colonel in this uh, recruiting command and he uh, told me that I could go in the Marine Corps and uh, I had to leave within three days. And I told him I needed four days. I had to go see my grandma down in Charleston before I hit the road. And, and I was probably one of those few people that went in on direct ship. Basically, I got the waivers I needed and 
they told me I could I could join the Marine Corps as long as I left in three days. And that was pretty much how it all started right there. Did they tell you you had to be in infantry? Did they what MOS did you end up going with? They originally asked me to go in on open contract and I told them that I wanted to go on infantry. And they said they were still sending me open contract, but uh, my recruiter kind of winked at me and he said, well, we'll see what we can do, you know, about getting you an infantry. And I don't know if it was the work that he did or, you know, if that just panned out that way, but I ended up in infantry. And how was life for you in the military? Life in the military was, how do you say, it was, you know, there was, of course, the happy times and the sad times and, you know, the... I guess the the sense of purpose that, you know, I craved, I definitely got to fulfill in the military, the sense of adventure and all that stuff. But uh, as I expected, you know, I joined the military after September 11th, so I figured that, you know, they were going to be calling upon us to do something pretty legitimate. And uh, before I knew it, I was in a unit on the way to Kuwait, which, you know, we before we knew it, we were on the way to Iraq from there. And I was in Iraq for the uh, invasion and thereafter for some of the support and stability operations. I had a very interesting time, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps, all in all. I got to see pretty legitimate combat. I was involved in the Battle of Nazaria. My company was the one that went through Ambush Alley in that battle. And we had 18 Marines that were KIA and 32 that were wounded out of 211 of us in our company. And uh, I thought, you know, it was going to be more like Desert Storm. We were just going to go in there and, and whip them and be done with it. And after that, I thought it was going to be like Vietnam, but it was kind of more of an isolated incident. We regrouped and uh, did a bunch of training stateside after that. And I went back for some of the support stability operations that, that took place after that. That put me at about three years in, and I got to do this kind of like different aspect of the Marine Corps from there. We got to basically be the op force for like six months and train Marines that were going to do uh, support stability operations. It's like nine day training package. Uh, we had worked like nine days on and had one day off and pretty much every unit that was getting ready to deploy came through this this area to train on March Air Reserve Base. That was pretty fun. I had to grow out my beard and uh, wear traditional Iraqi clothes and provide scenarios for Marines, which was pretty fun. And after that, I got to be involved in kind of the more garrison Marine Corps. I got to go to a formal training base, Camp Johnson, where they uh, trained MOSs like uh, logistics and supply admin. The corpsmen trained there, and we got to take so many Marines each two-week period to do uh, security forces around the base there. And um, that was pretty fun. It was very formal. I wasn't even allowed to have a regulation mustache there. And, you know, we wore our service uniforms and stuff, and we still wore games sometimes, but it was kind of like all different aspects of the Marine Corps. I got to kind of experience while I was there. Yeah, if I wouldn't have gotten those waivers, I never would have gone in the Marine Corps. And, you know, who knows where I'd be in life right now. I'd probably still be a troubled kid, you know. It's hard to say, but it was kind of a huge step up for me in life from where I was coming from to go in the Marine Corps and and then get out and have the opportunity to, you know, collect the GI Bill and go to school and all that stuff. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of the Marine Corps and started school. I just knew that I was going to get used to being a civilian again and try it out and uh, see what it was like with life on the GI Bill in an academic institution. And so far, it worked out all right, I think. So did you find returning home to civilian life and returning back to school to be challenging? Did you struggle with reintegration at all? Yeah, definitely. If anybody says they don't after those kind of experiences, I have a hard time believing them. Absolutely. It was definitely kind of tough. There was, you know, towards the, the last months in the Marine Corps, I definitely 
drank a lot to cope with things. And I definitely experienced a little self-isolation and kind of coming to terms with things. I think I did some of the best things I could do. I kind of pushed myself to do things outside of my comfort zone to get new experiences. Being a student and kind of, you know, answering to no higher authority than myself, except for, you know, just making sure that I did all my stuff, uh, you know, that I needed to do for school was quite possibly one of the best things that, that I could have did to kind of rehabilitate myself and to be a normal again. I got dogs. I got a pair of dachshunds, little miniature hound dogs. They were awesome, you know, just having the responsibility of taking a dog out on a regular basis and getting to know them and maybe even further developing the empathy that I kind of had been suppressing. I guess there was this uh, mentality that uh, a lot of us develop after going to combat where you kind of suppress your feelings, you know? The idea that if you don't, uh, you don't, you don't feel, you don't hurt, but what ends up happening is you don't really feel like pain, but you also don't feel good either. You develop this really kind of flat personality. At least that's something I noticed in a lot of guys that were in my unit and uh, had some of the same experiences. I think just kind of time since, you know, being in has healed that. And again, trying to do a lot of those things that, that kind of got me out of my comfort zone and pushed me to be more more integrated into society, if you will. You know, at Vet Voice Foundation, we talk about how getting outdoors helps folks uh, walk off the war and reconnect with their families and our communities. And it helps a lot of folks obviously decompress. Did you find that the case? Did you turn out to the outdoors when you got home? It's funny that you say that. Absolutely. That's kind of part of my direction towards the career path that I landed in. When I first went to school, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I just knew that, you know, I wanted to do something productive. I wanted to do something non-destructive that was beneficial to society. I guess I wanted to continue to serve in some kind of peaceful capacity. And at first, I thought maybe I'd go into psychology and you know deal with people. And I realized maybe people aren't it for me. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's wildlife and the outdoors that are. <laughs> and uh, I did. I found it to be very therapeutic. I found it to kind of stimulate my mind in a healthy way. Not only looking to the outdoors for recreation, but also again making it my career path. Going to work on a regular basis when I get to be outdoors in the field and doing the land management, wildlife management things. It's definitely very healing. It's very meaningful and very purposeful as well. It's it's uh, you know it's it's hard to I guess explain unless somebody's experienced it, which I hope you know uh, most people get to experience that stuff at least sometimes in their life. But yes, the answer is definitely. I was offered an, an internship after I got to the University of South Carolina. They had these special internships for students that transferred from community schools specifically, and they uh, told me I could work in any lab. Uh, it was a STEM grant. And they told me I could work in any lab in the university. I could go talk to these professors, find out they're doing their professors that were working with lab rats. They were testing them for cancer treatments. They're, you know, folks doing stuff, physics, really cool devices that I were far beyond my comprehension. I encountered some folks from an ecology lab at University of South Carolina. And they were out there doing predator research or rattlesnakes and uh, doing surveys for crawfish and salamanders and creeks and I was like sign me up that sounds pretty good right there and I had no idea how how therapeutic it would be and pretty much it got in my blood and I couldn't picture myself doing anything else after that 
that's kind of where I am today. That was back in 2009 and here in 2020, I'm still a biologist and still trying to, you know, send the good message. And, you know, not only am I a biologist, but I'm a community wildlife biologist, again, working at that sustainable development. Still, I ended up dealing with people more than I thought I was going to. I'm still doing things that get me out of my comfort zone, I suppose, using my powers for good, I hope. Where did your passion for wildlife really come from? Was it growing up and those experiences, just running free on your acres of land and discovering things yourself? I think that that's kind of where it originates. You know, if you're exposed to something young, it weaves its way into the fabric of your life, whether you realize it or not. But I don't think I really realized it. It was kind of normal when I was a kid, you know, the idea of the outdoors and wildlife and a landscape that has these nice biodiverse plants and animals and stuff like that that you can go see anytime you want. I don't think it was really until I had been deprived of that stuff when I lived in a city, you know, when I went to a landscape that was completely degraded that I started questioning, you know, what was it like here before? You know, what would it be like if things were done more intelligently and, you know, we left some stuff behind or developed in a different way. And that was one of the things that kind of drew me to the sustainably developed landscape that I work in now. And I work in another place very similar in South Carolina, a place in Bluffton called Palmetto Bluff. But before I worked on Jekyll Island and that's one of those things where they both were kind of partially developed and have a landscape that was left untouched and you know people are finding ways to live in harmony with wildlife and again i think that you know my my love for that stuff was kind of born in its absence you take yourself from a biologically rich place to a place that's kind of sterile you know it makes you kind of crave it you know what i mean what is the study of wildlife research and management and can you go a little bit more into detail of what exactly sustainable development is and what that would look like to somebody that doesn't know So when I say sustainable development, I'm thinking more in terms of the relationship with wildlife and the natural landscape. You know, you could interpret it a lot of different ways and talk about how you can make something more carbon neutral or something like that. But the way I'm referring to it here is kind of how a development or human footprint is placed inside of a landscape. And I think in essence, anywhere that you developed, you have to leave some space undeveloped for wildlife to exist there. There are some habitats that you don't want to interrupt. There like, for example, wetlands need to be able to flow. You can't develop in a way that causes them to back up or causes them to fester and putrefy and become disgusting. You need to make sure that those processes in that wetland continue to be able to do what they need to do. The best way to develop is to kind of understand that before you start instead of having to go back and fix it. Once you've kind of damaged something, it's really hard to go back and fix. And I can tell you on Jekyll Island, for example, we, we work with a lot of species. I call it the four Ps, predators, plants, problem species and priority species. So uh, predators are pretty obvious. You know, those are things that are on top of the food chain. Plants are kind of what the habitats are comprised of. So, you know, we try to focus on plants, especially when we talk about management, land management. Pretty much plants provide everything that the wildlife need for the most part. And the problem species are things like raccoons, which, you know, we you know, sometimes an alligator might show up in somebody's pool. So we do research with them too to try to figure out, you know, ways to mitigate those kind of problems. And uh, then there are the priority species, the things that are you know, already maybe struggling for one reason or another. And one of the things that we work with a lot on Jekyll Island are, are shorebirds and sea turtles. So things that you know rely on beach, which we have a lot of human activity on. So we try to do things that we mitigate how humans may impact their nesting behavior or their rearing behavior when they're raising chicks or something along those lines. 
So kind of all four of those things combined into the program that we've developed on Jekyll Island. And we try to focus on species that are umbrella species. It's one of the reasons why I like working with predators, because if I work with a predator that's on top of the food chain, pretty much all the things below in the food chain, if we're managing for that predator, are being managed for. And all that space that all those things need, you know, that is enough space for that one predator at the top of the food chain. Now I'm managing for, again, that one predator, I'm managing for all this space and all these different wildlife species. That's why we call them, again, an umbrella species. So if I can figure out the recipe for success to keep a predator, not only manage for a landscape, but manage for a landscape with people, then I'm doing something pretty darn good and I'm doing the right thing. That's for sure. What does a typical day look like for you on the job? I wish you would have asked me this question like five, six years ago. Back in the day, I was pretty much out there all day, every day, collecting data, doing a prescribed fire if it was the winter time. In the summertime, you know, where seasonal migratory species might be around that we need to monitor for at a higher frequency. Trapping predators like bobcats so you can put collars on them. Answering the occasional wildlife call a couple times a week for something like an alligator that's uh, hanging out next to somebody's car who wants to go somewhere. Sometimes uh, these days I'm more in the office. So I'm, I'm normally in the office uh, a few days a week and out in the field two days a week. So fairly balanced and pretty reasonable. I manage folks that are involved with an AmeriCorps program. In case you're not familiar with AmeriCorps, they're like the domestic version of the Peace Corps. And the folks that are young professionals will apply for those jobs and kind of volunteer a certain amount of their life to service. So uh, oftentimes for AmeriCorps, it's six months for a year. And for our agency, they're kind of contributing to the conservation program on a state park. So um, that's kind of where they fit into that. And uh, they get to do a lot of that uh, day-to-day data collections and stuff like that. And me and my counterpart, my supervisor, kind of stay in the office and we write management plans and make sure that they have all the things they need, the materials they need, plan out land management activities and assist them on the ground side by side as needed. So you actually did a couple stints with AmeriCorps. I did. That's how I started. Yep. Yeah. Can you talk to us about what you did? When I went to work on Jekyll Island as an AmeriCorps member, I went there basically the first year they had drafted up a new conservation plan. And previously they had kind of been more involved in conservation through the Sea Turtle Center. And they were trying to broaden the reach of conservation on the island. There wasn't a conservation department. There was a Sea Turtle Center at the time, which is kind of hard to believe there wasn't a conservation department yet. They instituted a conservation department. And I was, I guess, uh, the conservation plan research member at the time. So I did these baseline wildlife surveys built up our species list so we understood what was there, what wasn't there, and tried to develop a better understanding of a variety of species that we wanted to see if there are things that we needed to represent or manage for. Again, by finding out what we had and seeing what their status was on the island, seeing what their status was throughout the state and the region, and developing research studies around some of them. I started working with rattlesnakes because they were, again, that top predator, that umbrella species that you know would land uh, a lot of other species, some kind of conservation if we work with them. And we started working with alligators and, and down the road uh, as the conservation department started growing, we started working with bobcats as well for our, our predator program. That's how I started. I started just really getting those programs underway and uh, it worked out pretty well. I'm still here. Now I get to manage those programs and the, the folks that come work for me get to do some of their own personal projects and further develop ones that are already there. So you're like the godfather of these programs. 
<laughs> I got to I got to be there when they started. So it was yeah, definitely. What is your favorite species? My favorite species is definitely the the rattlesnakes. I, I definitely expected a lot of really amazing information to come out of, of the research program we're doing. But in 2011, Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes were partitioned for federal listing through the Endangered Species Act. Okay. They haven't been fully evaluated or, you know, they haven't been afforded protection yet, and we don't know if they will be, but they were at least enough of a species of concern that they needed more information to really be able to make an informed decision. Having worked with somebody else that did research with rattlesnakes, I already knew that there was only a handful of people throughout the United States doing research with rattlesnakes as it is. Even though they're a great model species, a predator that, you know, again, if you give them representation, you're given all these other, you know, species in the food chain and all these you know, other plant communities around them that they rely on representation. So you also do work with the Rattlesnake Conservancy. What can you possibly do to ensure that they don't become, would you say? Extinct? Locally extinct or extirpated. That's kind of what we're trying to figure out. So... I know certain habitats benefit them more than others. Habitats that are open canopied and have really dense kind of diverse vegetation at the ground level support higher mammal communities. Those types of habitats tend to benefit them more. We see them do better in areas that are flooded once in a while or areas that are early successional because uh, on islands, uh, on, at least on the Georgia coast, and it's you know different biogeography everywhere you go, but there are some areas that erode and there are some areas that grow sand. It's called the sand sharing system. Sand's kind of pushed down from the northern part of these islands down to the southern part. And as that southern part of the island grows, all that nice, beautiful, early successional plant community takes over. And that's where we see some of the some of the happiest, healthiest, and nicest looking rattlesnakes on the island. There's not a whole lot of that. Humans have interrupted the sand sharing system with dams dredges and, and levees and stuff like that. So we're kind of lucky to live near one of the longest free-flowing rivers on the East Coast of Georgia here, the Altamaha, where, you know, the sand sharing system is, is working like it's supposed to. But you know, things like that can affect that early successional habitat. Areas that are flooded periodically get reset. You know, it kind of takes the vegetation and just like if you mow the grass and it all grows back and stays at the ground level. In areas that kind of become overgrown and aren't managed, aren't burned, or aren't flooded periodically, fire is one of the best things you can do for, for you know early successional habitat. But areas like that that are kind of overgrown and unmanaged are areas we'd like to approach and, and tackle in the future. And being involved and active in the community, we, we tell people about these snakes. We give them names. People ask about their favorite snake. It's crazy. The same people that were like, you know, why the hell do you want to come do research with rattlesnakes here on Jekyll Island? You know, they used to ask questions like that. And, you know, they say, when you get there, what are you going to do? You're going to kill it? And I'd be like, no, no, we're just doing research on it. And we just talk to them very pragmatically. And eventually some of them got attached to some of the snakes and they ask about their, their snake, that's their favorite snake. And if somebody ran it over, they might get kind of upset and take it personally and say, how dare they run over my favorite rattlesnake? Tell me who it was and I'll go knock on their door and I'll just tell them, unfortunately, I don't know who it was. I'm sorry about the snake being lost, it lived a good life. Uh, we knew it reproduced once, thankfully. So, you know, those are the things we can kind of talk about with people. And it's, it's kind of been a paradigm shift on how people perceive them. And we're starting to know that they're genetically unique, made people get a little more attached to them, knowing that that's their Jekyll and rattlesnakes. And, you know, they want to know, is it going to be a subspecies? I'm like, I'm not sure if it's taken to that level yet, but maybe enough isolation it could be. And the community involvement is a big part of our management strategy there as well. And you have ties into the community with your side project. You co-own and manage Southern Brothers Farms, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. But can you talk about just what that is and what you all do and your cool mushrooms? 
first of all, I'm a firm believer in every, every biologist needs a side gig. Us biologists don't get paid very much, uh, even when you get a full-time job. So I tell all the folks to come work for me, you know, if you're in it, you know, don't worry about the money, just worry about all the adventures you're going to have and enjoy it. You know, the, in the spirit of being entrepreneurial, but also again, trying to have that purposeful, positive service involvement with the community. Me and a, a good friend of mine, Blake, and his brother, Benji, started kind of experimenting with growing gourmet mushrooms. And we grew them kind of indoors for a year. It was a, it was a dream that my, my buddy Blake had for a long time. And I, when I worked at that place, Palmetto Bluff, early on, there was this guy who came from a place called Mushroom Mountain. His name was Trad Cotter. And he did a presentation about mushrooms. We went out and collected mushrooms. We collected like hundreds of species of mushrooms. He told us how mushrooms outnumber plants six to one, which I'm like, that's crazy because in Georgia, there's like 5,000 plants, okay? That's a lot. I can't even memorize them. I've actually looked up the same plant more than once because I forgot I looked it up the first time. There's so many plants, you know? You know, he told us how many mushrooms there were and how easy it was to find them and you could sell mushrooms and they're really profitable and that he had one of the bigger farms up there in the upstate of South Carolina. And I just thought that was the neatest thing. And when I met Blake, I, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, Blake, um, kind of curious you know this guy talked about it in this kind of way like it wasn't that bad and could you show me a thing or two and he said the funniest thing he said i can get you five years ahead of schedule i can tell you five years of mistakes not to make get you going to my level like before you know it and totally within four months i was and that's been the genesis of it and yeah we we're interested in, in growing for the community so we grew indoors for a year we grew outdoors for a year with straw columns like this old-fashioned straw columns hanging from a ceiling and uh we've been indoors for almost two years now and it's going really well what's the easiest way to make tasty mushrooms you told me once they were the best mushrooms i ever made I think if you're gonna if you're gonna cook mushrooms for the first time, you got to know what they taste like. So you can't just kind of hide them and everything. I always recommend getting a pan and putting a little bit of oil in it and heating it up, especially if it's something like an oyster mushroom. That's always a good one to start with. You want to tear them instead of cut them because if you cut them, you kind of crush them. But if you tear them, they kind of pull apart nicely into small pieces. Once that pan's getting hot, you drop the mushrooms in there and you kind of let them sear and steam for just a minute. And uh, I like to put the little lid on top of them. It helps retain the moisture. And just for a minute, just to kind of soften them up. If you're a vegan, you know, maybe you use a certain kind of oil. Uh, if not, you can drop a little bit of butter in there. This is my favorite way to do it. Just let it smolder in butter for about five to six minutes and throw a few onions in to kind of get that sweet, crunchy taste in there with them doesn't really take away from the actual mushroom taste if you do that and uh, once you're ready to take them off you just kind of sprinkle salt and pepper or nature seasonings because it's got a little bit of everything salt pepper and the onion powder celery powder you can eat them straight up like that and if you have anything left over if you make a big pile of them you can throw them on anything you put them on a pizza after that or you can mix them in with some pasta but i think it's always good to kind of eat the mushroom uh straight up the first time just to kind of see what it tastes like do you work with a lot of veterans in your field no, I don't. That's something that, you know, I, I wish I wish I did. I wish there were more veterans in the field. A lot of times when you see veterans involved in, in the wildlife side of things, you'll definitely find some veterans involved in places like the Fish and Wildlife Service where they do like to have veterans. There's certain like federal preference in hiring veterans in, in some of those agencies. When it comes to like the NGO world or the academic world, they're pretty scarce. And I think there's a, a lot of reasons for that. You know, some of the veterans that do go in the field, a lot of times lean towards maybe the law enforcement side of things or the game board side of things, maybe sometimes with land management. But when you start talking about like research or academia, they're very non-existent. 
the process to get involved in that field is is pretty intense. You know, you pretty much find your way into an internship or early on, and then you kind of you know work somewhere for free or some kind of marginal pay. If somebody thinks you did a good enough job, you know, when you go apply for the next job, and you know you you ask them for a recommendation, they give you a good one. It helps you get the next job. Maybe you do a series of seasonal jobs until you get to the point where maybe you find something full time that maybe it's a technician job. So it's not like a forever job, but it's somewhere you can kind of sink your teeth in a little more and get some more experience. And a lot of times it's, you know, getting a master's that taking, you know, that next educational step and then finding a full-time job after that. And that, that, that's the path I took. And that's the path most people take. It's not easy to do. If you're a veteran, if you've had four years of, of life stuff accumulate, and if you have a kid, you know, and you've got to work seasonal jobs, it's darn near impossible you know, if you got responsibilities like a dog or, or bills, you know, and you, you know, how can you work an internship for free or do all those seasonal jobs? You, you know, may have to spend your money to go cross country to work somewhere for four months or something like that. It's a very challenging field to kind of break into. I think a lot of the people that initially go into it get weeded out. There's definitely, it's, it's not like, I wouldn't say hostile to veterans, but it's not necessarily hospitable to veterans to go into like the academic research side of things. They're definitely an underrepresented uh, demographic in the field research and field land management side of things. We definitely want a little bit of everybody's field. It's made better by the more hands that touch it, the more minds that contribute to it, the, the, the better that something becomes. And that's kind of you know, what, we're, what we're after. If you had 30 seconds to convince a veteran to explore the outdoors and just get outdoors, what would you say to them? I would just encourage them to kind of not just look at things, but to see them. Um, When you walk through a landscape, look for every little living thing that you can when you're walking. You know, don't don't assume all the trees are the same. Look at the trees and look and see what kind of different trees there are around you. I like to just kind of like think into think into things real deeply when I'm out in nature. And uh, I think if, if you do that, it kind of makes you a little more glued to it. Not just seeing mosquitoes or, or ticks or anything like that, but seeing all of it and kind of soaking it in and valuing it for what it is, I guess, I mean to say. We have an infatuation in our society with things like planet Earth and stuff like that. And seeing it's one thing, but experiencing it is another. And if you really want to know what it's like, if you really want to be attached to it, you got to kind of go dip your toes into it a little bit and, and kind of feel it. I think it's not just therapeutic for veterans, but it's therapeutic for anybody. We definitely need more people to experience it and uh, become attached to it and kind of represent it. If you don't experience something, you assume that everything's okay. That, you know, everybody is going to take care of it. And there's a lot of people that want people to do that stuff. But, you know, there's only so many people that are willing to go through all those steps necessary to do it. One of the steps of owning it and taking care of it and having that purpose to take care of it is getting out there and experiencing it. If you're in Georgia, visit Joe at Jekyll Island. And to learn more about the Rattlesnake Conservancy, visit SaveTheBuzzTales.org. This is a Vet Voice Foundation production. Our producer is Allison Bailey, and I'm your host, Kate Hoyt. 